everybody. Good morning uh, again and welcome. If I missed you earlier, my name is Wayne. I'm the pastor here at Downtown Community. And uh, I'm excited to engage Christmas with you. And every year I come out of it thinking, what, what more could I, we say about Christmas? But it's always interesting coming into the season how I, I get excited about it because it does begin to feel new again. And I love how, how deep the message of Christmas is, that there's so many things that we can talk about and pursue that have great meaning in our lives that we need to hear. And so this Christmas is really no different for me. And, and so what I want to do over the next several weeks is talk about four words that are particularly present in the Christmas season. And so, you know, we've got these words, peace, hope, joy, and love. And so we're engaging our Christmas services on Sunday today, next week on the 12th, and then the 19th. And, uh, and then on Christmas Eve, we're going to be doing an online-only service. So wherever you're at on Christmas Eve, we'll be uh, gathering in the evening online. And so we'll have our chat up, and we'll all be able to kind of engage that time together. But each, each time, we're going to talk about these words. And so these, these words, peace, hope, love, and joy, we say them all the time, or like we sing them during Christmas season. We drink, drink coffee out of mugs that have these words on them. We decorate with them, and we see it all over the city, all especially at Christmas. And so we, Christmas really is associated with these words, maybe more than any other time of year. And so really, for many of us, not maybe all of us, but even if you're just living around, like because... For our whole lives, really, Christmas has been around us. Now these words just kind of exist. We see that, and it's just like one of those things that we're used to seeing. And so many times I would say even worse than that would be that we don't really experience these words. And so then they just become meaningless. It's just, just like a star decoration. It's just something that's there in front of you. And so we see these words. We see these words. But we read and interpret them completely different. And we, we really experience and know these words directly to however we've engaged with them in our own daily lives. But with Christmas, it is different. And for Christ followers, these words have a much richer and deeper meaning that goes way beyond what we typically know about peace or love, joy, and hope. And so that is why they are so much a part of Christmas time. There's a reason why they become so synonymous with this. And really, culture around us, even for those who say, I don't believe in God, but I love the Christmas season, and it's, it's, it's really a season that, that, that we engage together, and I love that. I think there's some great common ground there that's wonderful. But we long to embrace these words, whether you even believe in God or not. And so this Christmas, I want to recapture why these words are here. At Christmas, I want to recapture this. So whether you are pursuing faith in your life right now, whether you uh, would say, I don't really have faith, but I'm here, uh, or maybe you've been following Christ for years, you were invited into this conversation and I pray that it will be great meaning, bring great meaning to your life this Christmas. So today, today we want to talk about peace. We'll start right off. We're going to do it in this order, just in case you're wondering. So next week we'll be talking about hope. And, and we're going to talk about peace. So here's interesting. So the way we interpret peace many times is, 
is really just with the absence of conflict. What we, mean, what we think really peace means is, and this is fine, like we can define, you can define peace however you think what peace means to you, but we, we many times are just like the absence of conflict. So we stop fighting, let's just, this would be done, let's move on. Like, and so now we have peace. We just remove whatever this is and we can have peace. But what's interesting is the, the scriptural, biblical view of peace that God gave us is completely different. And so we have, in the Christian faith, we have what we call the Old Testament scriptures where God was leading the people of Israel. Then we have the Hebrew scriptures where he was um, speaking to them about peace. And then all that pours over into Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection that set off all the New Testament writings that help us know and understand Jesus and who he is and how we become Christ followers. And so in the Old Testament, God gave them, and they have this word for peace called shalom. Perhaps you've heard of that. You may have a Jewish background, and so that might have been a big part of your life. And so shalom is associated with the word peace, but it's a much deeper meaning. It really has to do with being made whole. It's a word used to say that we've been made right and we've made, been made whole. And so, whole. And so we would say, you could say the word shalom with peace, like you know, shalom to you, but it can mean so many other different things. And so what's interesting is with with shalom, like, let's just say, like, you're, you, you know, something happened to your house. A tree fell into the side and hit the wall. Or maybe you, you buy a house and it's broken down and beyond repair. And so you've got to renovate this and you've got this whole wall that's all messed up. Well, you've got to make that wall whole. And so you can try to do some patchwork that just doesn't still look right. But you look at that and you say, this isn't. And so sometimes you've got to completely break it down or do something drastic to get it to be made right and to be made whole. And one day you're looking at this great, beautiful brick wall. Everything's even. The colors are the same. The masonry and all that in the middle is great. And then you say, ah, oh, that's, that's shalom. It's, it's made whole. It's back together. That is a biblical view of peace. And Jesus began to take that even further when he came. Our understanding is really like whatever can be ending conflict, that's peace for me. We'd say it's the absence of it. So if you're fighting, if, you, if you're, you're with a roommate or a parent or, you know, your, your, your spouse or whoever, you're just like, oh, just, let's just end this. Let's just run away from this. You can put it away. Like, that means peace for us. Just take the conflict away. This, is, this happens in wars. And, and what's interesting is, like, so this year we, we pulled out of Afghanistan. And it's something that really, from a political view, both sides have been wanting to do for years. And, but we, we pulled out. We were, like, trying to end so, you know, conflict or whatever you would describe that. But we felt anything but peace when that happened. If anything, it created everything but peace. I mean, we are conflicted in our hearts over, over everything we've seen coming out of that. We, we came out of that situation as something that both sides were saying that we want to do. They didn't know how to do it. They've been there for 20 years. But we didn't feel peace at all, did you? We actually mourn and are sorrowful for some of the conditions that we see happening there. We have refugees in our community even now that have come from that event. There's another event in history that was incredibly tragic but ended in incredible peace. At the end of World War II, uh, we bombed, as you probably know this in history, we bombed Japan with nuclear bombs, an unbelievable event in human history. It was on August 6, 1945, when we bombed Hiroshima, and then August 9th, Nagasaki. And it's interesting, 
Like that could have been the worst relations you would probably ever think of. And then we began to occupy Japan. And so Japan surrendered a week later after the second bombing. And so that, that began to help end World War II. But that's like a really bad point between Japan and the US. And I was reading about this in a couple different ways. Um, one, I found a Time Magazine article in 2018. Uh, they're still writing, by the way, and uh, you can find this online. But it talks about, you know, that was then. He says, but they're like, today, however, this is, you know, three years ago, so things are very different. 84% of Japanese people feel close to the US, according to the Japanese government's annual cabinet office poll. And 87% of Americans say they have a favorable view of Japan, according to a Gallup poll. And so they ask this question, which I love, is like, so how did the US and Japan get from the situation in 1945 to the strong alliance like, like the, these polls were suggesting? Like that seems unfathomable at the time. And then they made this statement, which I think is fascinating. It says, the process of reconciliation began as soon as the war ended. And they acknowledge, well, it didn't always go smoothly. Well, it's obviously very complex. And General MacArthur was the one put in charge of this. And he's written a biography, and he talks about these things. But what's interesting is they had the right to kill the emperor. Like the World War II Council put him in charge and he had some people reported to, but he literally had unilateral authority over the whole country and he was given the right to kill the emperor. But they didn't. He wanted to be benevolent, is what he said. He wanted to be a benevolent leader that restored the people, even though he had been given supreme rule. And so he began to do what he could to see that happen. They did not kill the emperor. They actually worked to win him over. And they went through three phases where they did punish those responsible for war crimes. And they went through an economic phase trying to boost their economy. And then, uh, then they ended it with a peace treaty of handing it over to them. They did really hard work of restoration. And I love how it ended with, and I'm probably stick, you know, settling too long on this, but this article talked about how in 2016, a historic display of reconciliation happened where uh, president Barack Obama became the first president to visit Hiroshima, and, and then uh, a couple of months later, the Japanese Prime Minister, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe visited Pearl Harbor. The two leaders' visit, as it was called, this is the White House's comment, the two leaders' visit will showcase the power of reconciliation that has turned former adversaries into the closest of allies. It's amazing. They had learned from other mistakes in the past. And they didn't want to give a list of punishments for the loser. They wanted to economically invest. And I think the biggest word is restore. Restore. That is a picture of peace. Full restoration. Like rebuilding a wall in your house or something that's broken. And that sometimes means that you need to break it down and engage in a way that's not easy and do some hard work. If, you, if, you, if you've done work in building or if you've been a gardener or you, know, you understand pruning and all these different types of things. And God is no different with us. He has been pursuing this deeper story of peace with us. There's a deeper work that God is wanting to do in our 
hearts. And the story of Christmas is God stepping into our story and continuing that work of peace in our lives. And so that's why we talk about peace at Christmas. And I love watching him do this in my own life. One of the joys of following Christ is seeing him do this active work in me, in my marriage. He's always leading us forward. As we pursue him, he pushes us towards peace with one another in unity and brings about joy in our lives. As a father, he's doing a work in me. I see all my flaws come out as a parent. I'm telling you, it's amazing, and it challenges me. And I've, and I've discovered over the years, if I tell my kids, stop doing that, it's usually because they watch me do this. I'm like, oh, interesting. So, you know, God is doing this work in me. He's, he's doing a work in me as a pastor. Ever since I've stepped forward, and we, the downtown community started six years ago, six years ago. It's my first time ever being the lead pastor. I've been in ministry for a long time leading up to that. But God has been discipling me more than any other time in my life as a pastor. He's doing this work in us. He's bringing about peace. And what I love about peace is when we experience peace, we also experience purpose. You also experience purpose. And it's interesting, if you ever had a time where a tragedy struck your life, or hardship, or sickness, or pain, maybe you lost a loved one. And many times what comes out of a moment like this is we ask why. And we want to find a purpose in pain. There's something that's in you and I that we want to connect the dots. We want everything to be connected, and we search for this. Whether it's a painful event or just life in general, you're looking for something to help you connect the dots. It's in you to do that. And so especially in pain, we want suffering to connect to something purposeful. And we are hopeful when we see that. If maybe a loved one passed away and a, an accident happened, but maybe it, it helped expose something and it saved thousands of lives in the long run. People find comfort. They find purpose in that. And that actually can bring them peace. And so the Christmas story is, is, is like this. It's a reminder that there's a thing in us that wants, to, that wants all these dots in our lives to connect. That they're not to be ignored. That God is made us, has made us to have a purpose. And the world isn't as random as we might think. There really is a story. That life is connected. There's a divine story. And if that's true, then we can find peace. We can find peace. But it doesn't always look like this. So what I want to do is begin this Christmas series together, reading a little bit of the Christmas story. We're going to go to Luke. And Luke's amazing. Luke is what we most commonly quote. out of the, We have the four Gospels, the, the four written account of Jesus' life. And Luke gave us the most detailed one. And you'll see here that he investigated. He went and interviewed people. He, he did everything he could to find all the details. And so he was around the time when all the followers of Christ were, were alive. Jesus had ascended into heaven. And he was interviewing them and finding out these stories. So he would have talked to Mary. She was alive during this time. He would have visited her and interviewed her for writing this gospel. And so listen to what he says here. This is how he begins the story of Jesus. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Saying, we've seen these things happen around us. He says, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first, who, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. I love this. So many strong words there. He's, he goes, I want you to know how certain the story of Christ is. And that brings peace and purpose. That's different than once upon a time there was a guy named Jesus. This is a real story that we can stand on. And so a little bit further on, he, go, he jumps into the birth of Christ. And so he says here, and this is found in Luke 1, 26. He says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, Elizabeth was Mary's relative. We, we don't actually know the exact relation. The, an older version, uh, the King James Version, translated the word cousin, so everybody's just start calling her the cousin. So I, I, this is actually new information to me. So she was, anyway, she was a relative of some sort. And so this is just giving a, a timeline account of, of you know, where, where this was happening. He says, in Elizabeth's six months of pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Who was a descendant of David. They're living the normal, normal life, and in this culture and time, this would have been an arranged marriage, and they were engaged, which was as, as strong as a commitment, a binding commitment as marriage itself. They would have had to have divorced for this engagement to end, but they weren't yet united as a couple. And so they're engaged, and she's, she's engaged to be Joseph. Okay, so good. So, um, yeah, and it says the virgin's name was Mary. And we don't know anything about Mary before the angel interrupted her life, because this is what was happening. All we know is that she was planning to marry Joseph, the carpenter, and lead a normal life, just like her father, mother before her, her father before her. She would have been excited and all these different things. She probably would have lived and died in the exact same Galilean community, that she was born in. She would just stayed right there in a small town, just like every other person in human history just kind of moved on. But the time had come for God to step in for another chapter in his story, to begin to move this story along in the story of our redemption, our restoration to be written. And, he, and the story was with Mary. And so it says here in verse 28, the, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So she's got to be like, okay, great. Like that, that's, an angel is showing and saying that? What was her response? I think it's what our response would be. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. And wondered, you know, what kind of greeting is this? Like, she didn't know if this is good news or bad news. You know, I'm, and quite logically, she's freaking out. And I would say she didn't feel peaceful. An angel showing up, we maybe want God to show up in our lives and say something to us, but this was not a peaceful moment for her. It says here, as it continues, it says, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, showing that she was afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. So maybe she goes, okay, <laughs> okay, like I didn't really... Like, how bad was the lie that I told last week? Like, an angel showing up, so she's okay. I could be reading in that too much, but anyway. This is an amazing statement. He's saying to her, you have been singled out for a purpose. God is showing up 
in human history. And then the angel continues to drop some bombs. It says, you will, and listen to how certain everything is, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and, you will, be, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And so for her, she had grown up hearing about a Messiah that was to come, and they hoped and they longed for God to send the Messiah as he had promised. And here's the angel saying that this, these are the words of the Messiah. And this has got to be overwhelming because she's saying you will conceive and give birth to a son. He's going to be called all these things. And they're in the Roman, you know, they've been occupied by the Roman government, the Roman Empire, and, they, and the world is evil, and it's not, it's great. There's a lot of death around them, and, and like, there she's thinking, and, you know, but, but I'm thinking she's not thinking about those words. She's probably thinking about you will conceive. And so she asks this question. She says, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And sure enough, that's exactly what we call Him. And Christians believe some amazing things. And one of them is that God came to us as a baby. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's a core part of our belief. And it's essential because it meant that he was not born of humans of sin, but of God. He came to us lowly. I think one of the reasons that you want to lean into peace is understanding. And God has been all throughout Scripture wanting us to see over and over and over again his, his character. He describes himself first as a God of mercy and love. One of the very few times that Jesus described his heart, he said, I am gentle and lowly. Scriptures talk about him coming as he did. It was like he took, he gave up what he, what he deserved in heaven and came to us in the lowest of forms. This was unlike any other written account of the Greek gods or anything else. The gods have always been said to be lording over us, and we're just fearful of them. And this is our own broken human heart. It's why we interpret God. We think he's always frustrated or disappointed, or we feel guilty, or he's lording up, he's over us, or he's angry, whatever it may be. We, we feel our distance because of our brokenness with him, but he's constantly coming up to us and saying, I'm a God of mercy and of love. I'm lowly. And that lowliness allows us to draw to him. He was beginning to make a way for us to have full peace with him. And so for Mary, this engaged a time of her life where everything got thrown upside down. And God's work of peace just didn't look like what we thought it would. We wanted peace. 
They desperately wanted peace. In the time of this Roman occupation and how awful the world was, they were longing. And you see that all the followers of Christ and his disciples, they were ready for him to step up one day and overthrow the government. And they didn't realize he was there for a much, much bigger issue and problem going on, that we didn't have peace with God ultimately. But we wanted peace. And so this was great news and awful news for her all at the same time. And it's just not the exact way that she wanted it to be. And so the angel says to her, he says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. The literal translation is, nothing from God is impossible. And it's incredible. And we see here, there's a couple things we see here. One is on occasion, God dropped directly into the lives of women and men to push the flywheel of his plan and he's saying he says life is not just random I am working there is a story of God I am the God of purpose and of great plan who's perfectly laying this out and everything happens because I let it be because of my will but for us for the most part our days seem to be made up of just a lot of random events and we don't feel peace about that it feels disjointed, and we don't know if God is really there. And I'm sure Mary felt this way. We think that everything's just so certain for her, but she didn't know how the story is going to play out. She just began to follow God. And the Mary does not hear from the angel again. She begins to go on with her life, but it gets chaotic. It gets worse. The next thing she knows, she's pregnant, and we're pretty sure she rode a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is about 80 miles. That's a long journey to walk. No cars. So that's why we have the donkey. I don't think it's actually referenced in Scripture. Isn't that interesting? But she had to get there on something, and she's pregnant. And she's wondering, like, where's the angel now? And everybody's staring at her because she's showing. But she's not married yet, and so that's a problem. And she can't tell them what's happened. She can't tell them her story. Nobody's going to believe that. Nobody. Yeah, an angel came to me, and I'm pregnant now. Good luck with that one, Right? And she's favored of God. And she gets there. And the journey's been so long that everybody was coming into these towns because of a Roman census. There were no rooms. And so as we know, that she and Joseph had to stay in a stable. This is a favorite of God. She's struggling. Jesus is born, and she sees some incredible things, and magi coming from afar, rulers that are coming to give honor and give them gifts. But then she hears that Herod wants to kill their child. Herod, a very known Roman ruler. And so they get back on the donkey and head to Egypt, which is 200 miles further away. And then Mary gets the worst news imaginable. Herod was doing what Herod does. He's a maniac trying to defend his throne. He was at the end of his life, and he hears of this boy king rumor, and so he puts to death every boy under two years old in Bethlehem. How could she not feel as if that was her fault? A random act of violence was another day for Herod. This is not peaceful. Sometimes the work of peace is not what we expected it to be. That would not have been easy. Where on peace does Mary hang her hat, right? God 
was engaging this broken world, beginning the rebuilding work. This broken wall of humanity. She eventually watched her son be crucified. She had been told that his kingdom will never end. And she sees him die. We know how this worked out. She didn't. She didn't know. We know the end of the story. But in that moment, for her and all of Jesus' followers, it was just another senseless Roman execution, and it all crashed down. And from everyone's perspective, this is just, here we go. And they're crushed. But what's amazing is that all of this was at the center, very epicenter of God's activity. So from the very moment when it looked like everything was lost and God had lost control, was at the crosshairs of God's greatest involvement in the world as he sent his son into the world to pay for the sins of mankind. The thing that's in you that wants order, the thing that's in you that wants purpose, that wants to experience peace, that you want everything to work out for good and somehow make sense, that is the thumbprint of God. That's the thumbprint of God. It was in this moment that he was most active. Jesus had to die. Now they, they then got it, and they saw him rise from the grave, and everything changed for them, and all these words began to become true. And so on Christmas, we are reminded that even when it seems random, even when it seems purposeless, when it seems to have no good, or when it seems that this is an unredeemable illness or death or job loss or a situation in your marriage, at Christmas, we're reminded that God is always with us. And if there's anything the Christmas story shows us, is that especially in the, the hardest of times, he's there with us. And that thing in you, that thumbprint of God that wants it to fit, is confirmed at Christmas. As God sent his son into the world to do an extraordinary extraordinary thing. It's incredible. Paul put it in theological terms like this. He says, let's see if I, yeah, in him we are also chosen. This is Ephesians 1. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who worked out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He has a plan and he is working this out. I love Mary's response. She put it in very personal terms. This is what her response was when the angel first appeared to her. Going back to Luke, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. An incredible statement. She's like, even though this dismantles the future that I've been planning out in my mind, God's work of peace was different. Perfect faith is not a faith that moves God. It's a faith that moves us to trust God, even when he doesn't seem to be moving. And we can't fully see what is ahead. She knew that she could trust God, and she said, okay. 
I love in Romans 5, Paul's writing to this church in Rome, and he says this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through we have whom, through whom, through Jesus, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And listen to this. He says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope of his glory. I love that. And next week, we're going to talk about the hope that we have. But today, we have peace. And yeah, our lives don't always feel like this peaceful. A new variant comes along. I don't know if you've heard about that. Or different things come in. But I have been made right with God. And we can trust his story in us. And we can walk in peace no matter what is going on because of what he has done. And we can live out a life of purpose in all circumstances. That's real peace. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for who you are. And your words to us, and I pray as we begin Christmas this year, that we would not try to make everything perfect, that we're, that we're not trying to make everything, you know, because we, we can't. It's just an impossible task. But I pray that we would rest in the hope of this Christmas message, especially that, that we can have peace with you. And just like Mary, if we could follow her example to say to God, I trust you. May it be as you have said. I pray that we would learn the joy of that and the purpose of that. We thank you, Father, and ask all this in your name. Amen.